Hello, it's episode 11 of On Design. Stuart Chapman and welcome to the Big Pictures on Design podcast, the podcast on, around and near the topic of design. For this episode we were very pleased to be able to talk to Dave Brown. Uh, Dave was a formative part of what became the Brown Union where he worked in various roles for 15 years, culminating in his position of Worldwide Director of FMCG. In the summer of last year he set up Brown & Co which is described as not just a new agency but a new kind of agency. So we talk about how it works, how he draws on the skills of talented collaborators all over the world, and the advantages and challenges of that model. Dave's also had experience of what it's like to be a design client since launching his own brand. We talk about his experiences of launching Cho Gaspaccio and what he's learned about design along the way. I met Dave at his home and office and began by asking him how he feels about the difference between corporate and consumer branding. started life in the corporate branding world mm. with, on brands like Vodafone when we had Vodafone at Brown Inc and brought that into the into the brand union network I just find that consumer branding for me I, it's more engaging because you're dealing with people humanity and engaging people at, in retail environments and to make a sale some people say we, we just design intelligent litter um, but I think we've got you know more of a responsibility now to be you know more sustainable in the way we approach that. We're more and more conscious about plastics in the environment, and particularly um, given you see a lot a lot of um, shows like the Blue Planet, etc. Absolutely. And then images on um, social media with um, turtles with um, drinking straws stuffed up their noses, and mm. and, the, and the little small micro pellets and micro beads that are. That are in the the stomachs of various you know dead marine life, mm. so um, you know convenience in the way that we consume products is one thing, but the impact longer term on what happens is another, and I think there is a you know there's an economic issue to deal with first, and the impact has that has on industry, mm. whether you know we move from the um, convenience of PET and plastic bottles to consume products in to, to more um, environmentally friendly materials that break down and even have a secondary use. I don't know how successful it's been, but um, looking at um, things like oyster mushroom um, spores and the, the use of those to make, uh, pardon the pun, moulds um, for... <laughs> Uh, and, and creating vac form bottles and products so you know when that when that product goes back into landfill more mm. mushroom spores are, are grown so there's a fantastic story around the use of those those proteins to create um you know different different kinds and formats of packaging for the future mm. but then it all boils down to expense and the supply chain and how economical is it to actually create those in the first place yeah and I guess it comes back to how do you incentivize environmentally friendly and sustainable behaviors at a corporate level? Like, because a lot of the time it's on a company to take a hit on their profits in order to achieve a sustainable solution, um, rather than hopefully they can find means and uh, means in which 
you can achieve a single solution, which actually is a is business benefit as well. Like, you know, um, compressed DOs and things like that, which Unilever are doing, obviously have a cost benefit to them as Less well materials. as being sustainable. Yeah. yeah. So going back to your um, brand union days <laughs> from that slight detour, what other um, sort of highlights do you have from that time in terms of the kind of brands you worked on? Well, the, hi- the highlights for me throughout those, those years would be building the deep long-term relationships that we had with clients like SAB Miller, uh, Record Benkiza, GSK. So SAB Miller um, was pretty prolific, I have to say. Mm. And I think we started life working with them in Eastern Europe on brands like Lek and Tiskia mm. with some um, clients who've become very good friends and have moved on to do other things in, in, in life. But we've still stayed connected and they have, of course, been um, been good clients ever since. Um, I, I remember fondly the, um, the on-tour brand safaris that Johnny Westcar and I did around Latin America where in probably the period of 11 months, we redefined, repositioned and redesigned 11 brands in um, Ecuador, Peru, Colombia, El Salvador and in Panama. Oh. That was real rock and roll. And um, So what was the process like for, for, for that? Well, they'd, SAB Miller had acquired you know, several operations in those markets and you know, to put the SAB Miller way into place of how to do great um, branding and how to run the operation meant that um, there was quite a lot of change required. So we had some huge successes, particularly in Peru, actually, where we redesigned the Cristal brand. And then as a result of that, the Pils and Callao brand was left a little behind. So we then had to take a look at refreshing that. The Pils and Callao story was really successful because the uplift as a direct result of, of the power of brand identity had um, seen that grow exponentially. So it, from a brand in decline, actually made significant um, value share growth mm. and won a DBA Design Effectiveness Award. We were never that big on entering awards, I have to say, apart from Glenn was winning lots of awards in um, luxury packaging with his spirits work. Um, but to win an FMCG award for a brand like that in in Peru was, was really cool. So that was very, very rewarding. Um, and it just proved that the relationship, the process and the approach that we had to defining brand equity and then understanding the culture of the operation and importantly, really appreciating the supply chain issues that exist when you're redesigning identities for beer. Mm. We had all of that pretty well nailed. and I guess you reached quite an efficient process over the course of 11 brands. We did, but I suppose it wasn't, it wasn't like a, as Tom Vanderplume from RB used to say, it wasn't a cookie-cutter approach. Right. You know, we, um, because of the cultural diversity, there were so many different ways that you had to approach things. But I think the principles of the framework and the way in which we handled assignments like that was in a very structured and an ordered fashion. So we wouldn't move into brand strategy until we were clear that all the insights had been defined and that we ensured that all the stakeholders involved were on the train when it left the station at the same time. Because mm. as you and I know, it's really crap to get to the first stop of the station and realise you've left half the bags behind, you've got to go back <laughs> and start again. So we, we had a much slower start 
at the front end of, a, of an assignment to make sure that we aligned everyone in the process, we were clear about who the brand owner was and who would be the one voice in, one voice out. And that just made life very efficient for us and we were able to, to work um, pretty quickly as a result of that. And then we had um, you know, a well-connected team. We were able to borrow uh, creative talent from, from the network that was a bit of a challenge sometimes because it was never one single global P&L and everyone always scrapped about um, the revenue share and who would be most responsible, who would take credit for the work. So we spent quite a lot of time trying to get the, the group to function and operate as, as one single entity, everyone in it together and sharing the, um, the upside and, and the successes. So they were they were really great times actually. It was really good fun, and we got to travel and see the world. So, semiotics plays a really important part in what we do. Understanding you know the, the cultural pace of change, um, how the codes function and operate. You know what means death in one market might mean joy and royalty in another, <laughs> and you can get it really wrong. Um, I remember we designed a an ice cream brand called Asian Delight, which was all purple and. For Thailand, and it was the you know, it was the color of death, and didn't quite work. The so, death ice cream. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> eat me and die. <laughs> so once you've once you've gathered the cultural insight and you've um, started to understand the semiotics of that of that industry, and you've got everyone on board, um, what is the what's the creative process like? How do you take that forward and then reach a potentially um, DBA DBA award winning design? I don't know. <laughs> this actually uh, touches on a, a really Im important aspect of why we're doing or I'm doing what we're doing now versus what we were doing then. Mm. It's really important that you have creatives and brand strategists who are involved in categories, uh, markets, products that they're really passionate about mm. and really want to be involved with as opposed to availability of the creative resource or talent that's available at the time mm. and quite often um, if you don't have that to hand you find yourself having to look for what we used to call freelance to support um, to support that and I think that's always a problem you you always want to put your a-team on on those kinds of projects and and ensure that everyone that's involved in them is really enjoying and getting the best out of that experience that they can. Mm. It was never always the case. I think that things could be more efficient and more fun than perhaps they, they, they were. It goes back to the three Fs about choosing work, fun, fame and fortune. I think as long as you have two of the Fs in place, that works. But if you just have one, it doesn't. Well, let's, I'm interested, I mean, you spent 15, you're a, a brand new for 15 years. Um, you then stepped down from that role and started to form Brown & Co., uh, yeah. which you describe as a new kind of agency. So in what way is it a new kind of agency? Well, I got really disillusioned with the current big agency network model. I took a year out throughout 2016 and spent that time to talk to brand owners about what their expectations were of their you know, partner agencies in identity and design in particular. And there was a common theme coming out from all of those, all of those interviews. I also spent time talking to um, independent um, freelance you know, creatives and brand strategists at the same time. 
and also smaller boutique operations. And was interested in essentially what was going on in what, what was you know then named the gig economy mm. and going into lots of the hotels around Shoreditch and just seeing lines of Macs of, or in coffee shops, whatever, of people just working out there in the real world rather than being stuck in the four walls of a um, you know, stainless steel, grey-walled office with polished wooden floors and exposed brickwork with um, moody lighting, etc. And IT systems that never really worked. But, but also battling with corporate egos and just being pretty um, flat about having to wade through all the treacle that exists in some of those operations with everyone's personal agenda. So I think, um, yeah, I learned a lot from, from that year out and, and, and thought that actually with technology as it is, exists today, we, you, can, you can be creative you know, outside of the four walls of, of an office and work from anywhere and everywhere. In mm. fact, um, so that's what um, I thought we should do. I'd got very disillusioned with having to build my life around my work. Mm. So I thought if we changed that and looked at it from the other way around and start looking at a way at how could you build your work around your life. And that's what we set out to achieve with Brown & Co. Learning in that period of time and from the experience I've had since I started my career is looking at human nature and the way that the way that we work and the way that we function and operate is to develop this virtual business model that I believe could be simply better for everyone. So working with human nature rather than against it um, to better humankind or do things which add value to the way that we live our lives. So going back to the three, the triumvirate of what Brown & Co really is. So I'd worked with Troy, Troy Wade, who was a strategy director at Brown Union based in South Africa for about four years. He came to the UK. He was in a similar position uh, to, to me at the same time. And we, we got on really well together as a creative and a brand strategist working together. And that's a really great combination. I knew that worked from the, the added value group days, that model of having brand strategy and creativity working together. Bic, of course, since he left Echo, we went to college together 30 whatever years ago it was, 33 years ago, and um, avowed that one day we'd like to and try to work together. We were competitors for the last 30 years, then <laughs> finally we came together um, at the beginning of this year, or the end of last year actually, to, to build what's become Brown & Co. So 2D, 3D design innovation with brand strategy at the core of what we do. The metaphor for our business is Thunderbirds. Okay. <laughs> Go on. So we, the, the core of the operation is on Tracy Island, and there are six of us in the, in the core of the operation. Three directors, and my ex-PA Paula Litster, now Baines, who worked with me at Brand Union, has now come back to as our Lady Penelope. She keeps us all in check and coordinates the whole operation. We have a creative director um, down in South Africa called Alex Robertson. And Kaylee Doby is uh, one of our uh, brand strategists and project manager. So those are six individuals who effectively run the whole operation. And then we have a collective of 87 um, people who have been um, vetted through the system. 
our website is a landing page at the moment, which is for recruitment more than anything. The website mm-hmm. goes live before Christmas. Right. Um, but that's used essentially to profile creatives and brand strategists to understand what their experience has been, what they love to do, what they don't like doing, examples of all their work so we can see what they're good at, also when they like to work, when they don't like to work. So there are lots of um, people have left the industry either because um, they've gone off to have kids and then can't go back to a five-day week but still want to work in the industry. So working remotely or in a virtual agency like this is brilliant because it just means they work when they want to, what fits their lifestyle. Mm-hmm. As long as you know the programme is completed <clears throat> in a timely fashion with a great quality of work, then that's all that matters. So having you know virtual check-ins, even virtual drinks, which are quite a laugh. <laughs> so it doesn't feel like um, we're not in the same room. We do come together on a regular basis. There's plenty of WeWork space out there or various bars, rooms, hotels, whatever, where you can have meetings. You don't need the expenses of a... Um, or overheads of a, of a, um, a big office to run. It, feel, it sounds like it fits the way you want to live your life and it fits that you can work at the times that you want to do and so on what's what's the benefit to the to the client of coming to a, a virtual agency over a um, well, we, traditional one we nailed it down to five to, to, to five um, elements I think you have the opportunity to connect with better talent a selection of individuals that we found that we believe for what we do are the best in the world not just the best in the office or in, in your city. Mm. The world is a small place with um, obviously connected technology, so that's been amazing. I think better productivity. We all work the way we like to work, the way we want to and the way we all think we work best. So there's no pressure on anyone to be in the office at nine, clocked in, mm. or to have left at 5 or have to work on till 10 and 10 p.m. So either working from home or together in a convenient space, wherever that might be, whether it's a forest, a coffee shop, a bar, a hotel, restaurant, wherever, it doesn't really matter. But what is important is the environment in which we work has some association with either the product or the um, experience or the market in which we're, we're, we're mm. dealing with. Can you give me some examples? Um, well, working with um, coffee guys, I won't say the brand, what the brand is, but most of the most of the um, co-working um, opportunities there were in at a barista's or in a coffee shop or whatever to watch consumers behaving, to see how they were um, mm. experiencing the brand. We work where consumers are and where the inspiration finds us. I think. It's all too easy to be stuck in the convenience of an office behind a Mac or in the library or whatever it might be. And instead of getting out there and actually experiencing in real time how the brand lives, functions and how the consumers interact with it. So, I mean, that just sounds like a bit of a no-brainer, really, but you'd be surprised Mm. how many um, teams who are expected to be at their desk, on their Macs, on their computers, whatever working nine till whenever, yeah. doing the same stuff. 
um, getting on the train to go into to, to work. It was like Groundhog Day. I've done it a couple of times over the last few weeks, and just looking at the depressed faces on public transport when it does work for an hour and a half each way, just I can't believe I did that for fifteen years. And how do you how do you determine which of your network of eighty seven um, potential creatives? How do you determine which of those to draw on for a particular project? One of the biggest challenges is availability. So I think as long as you've got plenty of time at the front end of a programme of work to plan, mm-hmm. um, part of the uh, software that we have is a little like the way that Zipcar works. So when you want to plan you know, a streetcar or a car share, you find out where the car is and how long it's available for. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have that opportunity to, to do that within the, within the system. But also... Um, we check in with each other, with the core team. As the business grows, we're not using all 87 people for obvious reasons. They're, they're doing other things. The collaborators that we do have, there have been a lot of projects going through at the moment which are in um, beer around the world. We have a lot of work in personal care going on at the moment and also in, it seems to be a lot of um, drinks and beverage, but also corporate branding work. We have quite a lot of talent who are based in South Africa, we have talent in Asia, in the US, um, and in Europe. And it's really good to be able to draw on the services of those individuals, not only from a cultural perspective, but also from an experiential perspective. Mm. Most of the, the guys and girls um, at the moment are at a, quite a senior level, so the design director level upwards. Mm. And I think as the business gets to some scale we need to work out how we can bring and nurture young talent through the operation through the business yeah so that um we do get to grow a core of more full-time people rather than a group of um collaborators who are in the collective yeah or the thunderbirds that are out there um what's that air traffic control really and and managing the um managing the teams it's pretty clear that this this way of working a virtual agency is nothing new. Mm. So there are some marketing agencies like Oxford SM who've been doing it for the last 20 plus years. Or um, you know, lots of people in insurance and the legal, the legal practices have operated on this model for, for many years. And also in the US and in Australasia. But no one's really lifted their head above the parapet and talked about this sort of... Um, this collective way of working and and used PR to to um, celebrate it. You talked about um, some of the categories you've been working on. So you said beer, personal care, uh, drinks, and some corporate brands as well. Um, can you give me some examples of some of the brands you've worked on? Have any uh, seen the light of day yet that you can talk about? The first big one actually was um, we were we were called in to relaunch and redesign Turkey's number one brand, which was FS. And that, um, if anyone had, we were given that opportunity in March, actually. And what is FS? FS is a beer beer brand. It's Turkey's biggest. Um, the group is called Anadolu FS Group, and they um, have car rental companies, logistics businesses, insurance, um, energy, and, and beer. beer and beer. <laughs> Highly successful group yeah. who operate 
not only in Turkey, but all associated markets around Central Asia. Um, so it's a really big, uh, prestigious operation and group. It's one of those beer brands that in the 30-odd years that I've been in business, I always wanted to, to get my hands on. And then we finally had this opportunity, essentially for a brand that had been in decline for the last seven years. It's a dark market in Turkey, one of the darkest markets, which means you can't really communicate any of the brand assets in the outside world, certainly in advertising, but even in the on and off trade channels, apart from the retailing of the products where you're allowed to have the, the brand equity um, or the name and the brand on the bottle. So the bottle has to work and the label has to work um, extremely hard. And then you create what's called a proxy brand, which borrows from the visual brand language without it saying anything about the brand but you can leverage some of those assets. So for instance, we created um, two blues which come together because the brand's positioning is all about enjoying or drinking, enjoying together genuinely. It means great times with friends. It's the whole beer bonding positioning. But we, instead of it being just one blue, a blue brand, we created a back to the future approach of looking at um, some of the older um, expressions of, of the brand's identity and leverage that for the new approach, rather than trying to make it look more youthful, which people tend to do these days, and it never works. We learned that from Peroni mm. uh, when that was so successful. So the two blues coming together, um, if you just saw those in isolation, even after such a short space of time in the market, it was launched on July the, July the 4th, people would recall that as being FS without saying anything about the brand. So, you know, that's the power of, of colour and shape and form and function and the symbols that we used. So what was the, um, what was the process that um, Brandon Co. Uh, applied on that project? If anyone had said to me a couple of years ago, there's a complete relaunch of a, of a brand here with 40 items in the portfolio, including development of proxy brand, um, and then taking the insights, doing design research, all of the processes through um, auditing the supply chain, being in market, doing brand safaris, all the design work, design development, artwork, print, print liaison in the markets where it's printed, and you've got maximum eight weeks to do that. I would have thought it would, it's just physically not possible. But we did it. and In eight weeks? In eight weeks. We completed the whole project in six weeks. And two weeks was print and print liaison. And it was a lot of hard work. And there were ten individuals involved in that process. It really you know, set us up pretty well right at the front end at the beginning. And built a really great relationship with the Anadolu FS group. So you know, that's obviously um, then moved on to other markets and other things. So how did you achieve that? The eight weeks, uh, complete redesign in eight weeks? Well, you do it by ensuring that the team you have working are really experienced in the category. So there's no learning on the job. Um, we've had up to 30 years of experience of working in that industry. So you know all the pitfalls. You've learned by your mistakes you know, throughout that period of time. So we just put into place the you know the proper stepping stones required to get you there. Um, importantly as well, to stop rework loops, we 
clearly defined who the brand owner was going to be and at the senior level and that, that the one voice response would be from, from, from me at the time and that we were very clear about how we would need to do this because where they were previously, um, the particular guy I'm talking about in question who should remain nameless, um, was saying that the work that was presented was, was good, fair enough, um, and it was you know, acceptable, good quality beer design work, but it was like moving the deck chairs around on the Titanic. So it wasn't really going to help a brand in a dark market where identity has to do everything, mm. start to you know, turn the fortunes of that brand round. And we've had the results in, and seven years of decline have now actually moved into um, growth. Fantastic. So that's really... Um, so I'm sure that we'll put that in for a DBA Design Effectiveness Award. I think being channel agnostic is really is really important as well. So that's sort of a media-neutral approach to... So we haven't got a vested interest to sell any one particular uh, way of doing something, given you know the set of talent that we happen to have in the office or whatever. So we have, we have no real full-time design employees... So there, there isn't an agenda to sell a brand on any particular solution based on the unutilised resources in the, in the studio. We, we prefer to recommend what's best for the brief uh, and the brand of course and then build a bespoke custom-made team of specialists um, who can deliver from every available design discipline on demand. I think that's really what's, what's really exciting about it. I can see what you were uh, the advantages and benefits of, of this uh, for you uh, personally in terms of the flexibility of work and not having to face that uh, awful commute. Schlep. The schlep. Yes. Um, but is there anything you miss uh, from working in a big agency? I think I'd be wrong to say that actually ha- having one to one contact with, um, with a team every day is something that I, I really miss because. Um, we're, we're gregarious, aren't we, by nature as, as humans. Mm. But I think there's enough of, of that personal connection um, during the week to make it still still exciting and interesting. It was interesting that you mentioned, um, as well as having your your Zoom conversations about projects, you're also having uh, Zoom drinks. So you're finding ways of, um, of doing the more ad hoc and social conversations that you need to bond a, a community together as well. Yeah, they're quite funny. So you pick a topic of conversation. It might be you know, someone wants to pick a something they found which is humorous, or um, what's topical in the um, on the news, or you know what new brands have been launched in particular markets, and then everyone you know says a few words about that, and eventually throughout the you know the, to one hours to two hours, everyone gets gradually more and more. Um, um, fluid in what they say, we're induced by gin, so, so they're quite, they're very funny. It's always interesting to learn about the design process uh, for um, design agencies when they come to design their own name and come to design their own logo. So, what was that uh, process like for you, for Brown and Co? Well, that's a really interesting one because um, I I've had a, a relationship with Glenn Tutsell for many years, who was obviously was a design hero of mine in the early days when he was creative director at uh, Michael Peters, 
and then I finally got the pleasure and privilege of working together with him at um, at Brand Union, and you know such a friendship built actually that he was my best man at uh, at my my wedding the marriage marriage to Pam, and when he'd heard that um, I was going to set up again with Bick and Troy with this new adventure called Brown and Co, he wouldn't take no for an answer. Um, he absolutely um, was going to do the identity, would do the identity. Um, so I, I agreed and we worked really closely. So we you know, sat and listened to the way that the business was based on this collaborative model, Brown and Co, could be Brown and client name or and collaborator and colleague and company and etc. So there was quite an interesting campaignable idea around the construct of the mm. name. Um I'm not quite sure whether whether Bick's happy with the fact that it's called Brown as opposed to Bick and Co. Whatever, but <laughs> anyway, that's another that's another another matter. We um, we we settled on that, I guess, because of the history of what Brown Inc. used to be. I suppose more than anything else. Um, but I, I think also talking to Glenn about this omni-channel approach that I wanted to make sure that the agency was um, off to online, uh, and that we talked about channel agnostic, etc. and that he he created and developed this wonderful monogram for us, which was the integration of the B and an ampersand, and how you could use that and flex that in email signatures, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think it would have been so easy. I mean, I did the old brown ink identity me because I'm a designer, but um, I think it was great to to go through that process with him. And then he had all the insight. I think so. Insight, I think, is key to all of this. Understanding, you know, that what the what the business is all about, and it's then that a smile in the mind can be created. And Glenn's a master at doing that. And I wanted the the agency's look in on in on paper, so the business card as antiquated as they might be, um, could look very classic and timeless but certainly be all about craft and uh, quality of the design intent and integrity. And then our expression in other media channels would be um, slightly more youthful, funky and, and um, exciting. Mm. So after, um, after all these years in design, have you, have you gained any great insight into what makes for great design and, and how are you applying that philosophy of Brown & Co? There's no replacing passion for to the industry that we work in and just immersing yourself in things that um, make you feel good. And for me, creating a, an, a, a one of the, they call, we call it a smile in the mind idea, I think is everything. So I love to see a great idea built into something, however small, however simple that is. And that seeing something that is so clever and so smart but is yet so obvious, but so fit for purpose. I so, said, I wish I'd done that. I mean, that's what, for me, what makes a difference. What brands do you look to that have achieved that smile Aston Martin. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd say that. Yeah, I know. And um, you've got your beautiful DB11 parked outside. Well, I'm a massive fan of um, Marek Reichman, who's the um, chief creative officer at Aston. And I think ever since, you know, I got into this industry... It was a sort of childhood dream to own an Aston Martin. It's the, I guess it always had my name on it. The DB is David Brown, Aston Martin. <laughs> it's so destiny. It was, yeah. And, um, you know, I, 
I never had any cash to be able to, to, to do that and buy one of those. And, and throughout the, the early days, it added value. There were, there were those workshops where they would ask, um, what would you do? What would you do with the first million pounds that you had or you'd earned or whatever? And of course, the only thing I was ever interested in was was owning an Aston, so which is very shallow, really, <laughs> of me. But 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 they're beautiful design objects. It's one of, I think it's one of those um, things of beauty that it doesn't matter every every morning, from every, any angle, it just looks fantastic, and it's a total experience that when I get the chance to, I love to drive, and I've always been into a bit of a petrol head and, and loved cars. The last job actually that um, I did at Brand Union was was involved um, with Aston and creating this experience around one of their one of their brands, one of their cars. Um, but unfortunately, that one didn't come to fruition because there were too many cooks involved in the process, mm. trying to get involved and you know stick their oar into doing that. So um, I'll never forget that. Um, actually, Simon Simon Bolton op- opened up the opportunity there at WPP, and he and I were in- involved purely in doing that and it was a great opportunity but too many people mm. from other parts of the network and directors in the operation wanted to get involved and completely screwed that so that was a real shame but you know now I'm I'm out of non-compete non-solicit and have been for some time so I've got some good friends at Aston and um, know Andy Palmer really well is the CEO and we um, we are talking to each other yeah, well, fingers crossed that comes up yeah. for you. But obviously they have rostered agencies, and WPP, of course, is a big one of those, mm-hmm. so I'm not clearly into rattling any cages, that's for sure. But if the right opportunity came along, then obviously I think we could we could add some value mm-hmm. there. So um, I wanted to ask you about, because um, as well as being um, on the agency side, um, on the creative side, uh, you've also turned client, and you've launched your own brand, uh, Cho, oh, yeah. uh, which is a drinking gazpacho. So I've been mates with um, a couple, um, Adam and Karen Baker, who um, used to have a company called Fantastic, and they were an events business who would you know, create experiences around um, some quite big brands. Adam's a really brilliant, hilarious character. Uh, we've been mates for you know, probably close to 20 years now, I suppose. And um, he'd grown up on gazpacho from having a place in... Um, in Spain, and they lived there with his with his parents. Anyway, he he contacted me um, and said, "I've got this. I've got this great idea for a new a new food or a new beverage brand called Cho from Gazpacho, and it's a a range of different flavored um, gazpachos that that's this Michelin accredited um, star chef in um, Almeria had been producing as a." as a drink before before dinner. It's massively popular as a drink in, in Spain, of course. And he said, look, come over to Al- Almeria, have a look at this and see what you think, see if we can create a brand. So um, I tried about 12 different versions of this that were absolutely amazing, all low in sugar, you know, a combination of fruit and veggies, like a salad in a bottle. And uh, we started to develop and build a, a brand identity and a, a whole proposition uh, about the thing. Did some work. Um, actually, we um, it was Mike Tivenon, um, one of your co-founders, um, of, the co-founders of the Big Picture, who was massively supportive in helping us with positioning, and um, we did some qualitative work, um, you know, very, very cheaply as it happens at the time, to give us an idea of of how that would work, and we created the brand called Cho. 
I think one of the great things about doing that was um, it's been a very expensive dalliance, <laughs> that's for sure, and still not uh, making any money yet, but that's not to say it won't. I'd encourage anyone who can try and experience what it's like to be on the brand owner side of the business mm. because you appreciate everything about supply and distribution. You understand about what it's like to be listed and then delisted. Um, everything that happens with a brand owner in terms of merchandising and the taxes that are put on you by retailers. So what that did for me actually was allowed me to have a very different conversation with brand owners from the agency side because I was fully appreciative about their marketing dollars they were spending and mm -hmm. how best to utilise that those funds. So um, I think it sort of, it, it allowed me to think differently about the business of design having been on the other side of the fence or still on the other side of the fence. Yeah. What did you learn about the design process um, being on that side of the fence? <laughs> well, um, we had a, we got a, originally got a smaller agency called Blast involved in um, designing that and also um, the guy called Gary Cook who was one of my um, creative directors from the early days was helping in that as well but I think you know I did quite a lot of the um, identity work for that and hand drawing stuff and and still got back into um, being very much hands on in in the creation of that identity. Um, it's interesting when you're on the on the brand owner side and you're from agency world, you know exactly how long things take, and you know um, the corners that get cut, and you can clearly see in the output where those corners were indeed cut. Have you managed to have any great successes or have you um, learned We did, from so we um, Brexit right royally stuffed us, which is a bit of a nightmare because mm. on the day that we were about to launch our crowdfunding um, pitch and go live, we already had half of the money um, pledged from Spanish businesses. Um, and of course then the result for Brexit came in on the day we were about to launch, the, the pitch was going live. Spanish investors pulled out for mm. obvious reasons. Mm. So we had to rethink about um, perhaps we should start a business up in Spain and work it from that way. And then there were issues around format. So we're coming out of glass, which is a real shame because of there's a problem with many of the retailers and having glass. So we, we got um, very quickly um, involved with Tesco Backit, which is a rewards-based um, crowdfunding platform. Yeah. And we were successfully, um, we successfully got through that campaign. It wasn't a huge amount of cash; it's a rewards-based um, platform. But um, what that allowed us to do was to think about the change from glass into Tetra, because Tetra Pak will give us the twelve-month shelf life we need. It'll also allow us to get into schools. We had a campaign based on schools because C H O is in schools. Ah, of course. Um, and also brands like Google won't take glass. The airlines were interested, but not in glass, um, and various other um, food server operations. So currently, um, Adam's working with a new supplier to move into Tetra Pak. We have some guys who are ex-innocent who have shown an interest in what we're doing. Um, there's plenty of investment available to us in um, continental Europe, and I think we'll grow the brand outside of the UK and then we haven't said no to the UK, but people like Sainsbury's, Tesco, and others are interested to have a chat re, a spring relaunch next year. Oh, fantastic! So we might see 
some healthier chill drinking gets back to chill heating the streets. Who yeah. knows? So that's it. Thank you to Dave for giving up his time to talk to me and giving his insight into the world of design and the way that Brown & Co works. I think as design agencies get bigger and bigger, and of course the brand union was recently merged with a number of other creative agencies, Brown & Co stands as an example of a challenger to the norm, drawing on the agility and breadth of talent that technology now affords. So good luck to Dave with his new venture, and of course keep an eye out for Cho. Uh, that's more or less it for this episode, but a quick plug. Uh, we've got a couple of exciting guests lined up, one of whom is Vicky Bullen, who is CEO of Coley Portobell. So hit that subscribe button to have new episodes pop into your app as soon as they're ready, and do, of course, share it with your colleagues and friends. Uh, you can follow us at On Design Podcast on Twitter, uh, and we're on Facebook as well. So thanks, as always, to Reese for patient production support. Uh, until next time, bye for now. <laughs>